Well, by my watch, it's 1,600 hours, and, and it would be remiss of me if this is a talk about war and things military, not to start precisely with military precision. Um, so I'm going to, um, I'm going to get started. Um, uh, my name's uh, Dr. Rob Johnson. I'm the um, Deputy Director of the Changing Character of War Research Programme here at Oxford, uh, under the um, direction uh, currently of Professor Hugh Strawn, the Chichilli Professor of the History of War at All Souls College. And... Um, <coughs> Uh, just to give you an advert right at the very beginning, uh, we're in the business of um, trying to expand our operation. Uh, we're currently uh, pretty busy, as you can imagine. Uh, operations in Afghanistan, Iraq and Libya have, uh, have really ramped up the demand for our, for our uh, expertise or specialisms. Um, and to that end, um, you may be interested to know that um, I just published a book uh, this week. It came out on Monday uh, called The Afghan Way of War. Um, and you may have seen advertised in the brochure that uh, there'll be a book signing. That you can purchase a copy, sadly not here in this room, um, since I don't have facilities for that, but in Blackwell's in Broad Street, uh, opposite the uh, Bodleian, you'll see that uh, there'll be a setup for us there. At least I hope so. I haven't seen it yet, but apparently there's something for us there. So if you'd like to come along, you'd be very welcome. Of course, it's a good opportunity to get back into Blackwell's and see things. When will that be? Uh, at 5.30, sir. 5.30. Um, I think it's worth beginning um, like this. Strikes and paralysis in Egypt, demands for constitutional reform uh, in Tunisia, unrest amongst tribal forces in Libya, a war in Afghanistan, terrorist outrages, calls for a single caliphate by ideological motivated terrorist forces, concerns for the global economy, particularly demands for retrenchment, a lurking fear of international pandemics, and even a lurking fear of the resurgence of Russia. Britain and America counting the cost of war and demanding there be dramatic cuts in their war economies. Now, you might be forgiven for thinking I'm describing 2011. In fact, I'm talking about 1919. The point is that we've been here before. And for all the comments about the changing character of war, and undoubtedly war does change its character, the nature of war, perhaps, in its essence, remains somewhat unchanging. And I believe that we're in danger of leaping to the wrong conclusions in the belief that somehow something has changed about war and conflict in particular. Now, analogies with the interwar years may actually be um, uh, appropriate. Um, this is one of my favourite films by Fritz Lang in 1926, imagining the wo world in about 2026. The UK government, at the moment, needs to make dramatic cuts uh, in its defence budget, um, and this, in a way, replicates what happened in 1919, where there had to be a 20% cut in defence, costing um, about £100 million, or to save, rather, about £100 million. The question of 1919 for the UK, and indeed, actually, for much of the West, was what kind of war or conflict do we prepare ourselves for? Is it going to be more insurgency, or do we prepare ourselves for a major state-on-state -state war? Or both? And at what cost? I think if we're going to assess how wars have changed, we need, of course, first of all, to have a better understanding of what war is. And that's essentially what the Changing Character War programme attempts to do. There is, of course, a great deal of confusion over the legal status of war. This is a photograph of Peshawar in 1930, with a British armoured car doing apparently counter-insurgency or internal security work, 
And as you see underneath, there it is, caught fire, and the crew had to run for lives and be rescued by an infantry regiment. What is war? There is confusion over its legal status, I say, because in international law we can't quite agree what modern conflicts actually are. There's no longer a clear distinction between war and peace, and one only needs to look at these photographs to get some impression about, you know, this is, by the way, this is Istanbul, to ask the question, you know, is uh, Turkey at war with terrorist factions, or is this some other form of conflict? A great deal has been written recently about so-called new wars. Uh, after the Cold War was over, um, in those immediate post-war conflicts in Bosnia uh, and for, uh, in Kosovo, there were uh, attempts to understand some new form of conflict. It was argued that um, conflicts now were reactions to a globalised economy, that there was a decentralisation of violence. No longer did the state have the monopoly of violence, as Weber would have put it. And wars now, they argued, were about the politics of identity. Radical thinkers, therefore, suggested, and still do suggest, that we should transform the kind of military forces that we have utterly to meet these new threats. And indeed, change the very laws of war that we currently have in order to manage these new threats. Well, as you know, the uh, democratisation project that was put forward after 9-11 to somehow democratise the Middle East has given no guarantee of peace at all. It was supposed to be, the democratisation project, uh, the way of um, preventing or uh, finding some antidote, if you like, to failing states. Can you say what that was? uh, To basically bring about democracy Mm -hmm. in the... Oh, people like Bush and Blair, really. Uh, arguing that if you had democracy around the world, there'd be no more wars. The sort of idea derived, I'm sure you remember, from Immanuel Kant, who said that democracies don't really fight each other. But again, the problem is that um, the West uh, you know, thinks that it understands war as being you know, something that tyrannies do and that democracies do not do. I think the problem is, of course, that these, uh, these lack of, of clear distinctions um, don't help us. If we only look at the present, we have to go back to the past to find some points of reference to help us understand what's going on. You know, this is the sort of regime we're looking at in terms of what people think war is about, but let's turn to some of the historical figures to see uh, how we can, they can help us. Thomas Hobbes, I'm sure you remember, uh, believed that violence was sort of universal, and that a natural state of mankind was to be locked in war, and that the only way you could avoid this was by centralising power, not democratising. Others disagreed. Of course, Jean-Jacques Rousseau believed that war was not universal, that men were only compelled to go to war because they were organised as such by states. It was the tyranny of states, he argued, that was a real problem, the real power. Of course, many wars of the 19th and early 20th century were, in fact, people's wars. They were democratised conflicts. Democracy um, did not uh, help us avert war because it implied, by its nature, mass participation in conflict. Citizens who demanded a voice in the running of states um, argued that, uh, you know, or others would argue rather this, this democratisation made them uh, liable. If, if citizens were enrolled into armies or were responsible for assisting the production uh, you know, in, uh, in the mechanisms of war, then they were legitimate targets. And we saw the real consequences of that through the two world wars. So, um, really, what, um, you know, what 
can we make, in a sense? So where can we go if, we, if we're going to understand um, uh, the, the future of conflicts, if, we, if we're going to look back at the past? What, what can we actually build on? Well, um, some people might turn back uh, a bit further in the past and say that, well, if we go right back past this sort of 20th century, back into the, um, uh, the early modern period, we'd be looking, for example, uh, to find out what is the nature of war there. Is it somehow different? Is there some character? Do we have some clues that we can draw upon? Well, one of the things that we might come across, of course, are failing states or failed states. People often talk as if these are new phenomena. But states were always being formed and reformed. War was used as the means to forge identity. Um, and if you look at, for example, America in the 1770s uh, or Britain in the 1640s, uh, you would find the same sort of processes going on. Wars being used to create identities to forge states. But I don't think nowadays people would refer to the American colonies as failing states, although that's largely what they were economically. Um, war, uh, warlords, for example, um, again often associated with failing states or failed states, would be recognised by someone like Niccolo uh, Machiavelli as actually the, ba- the building block of a state. You, know, you need warlords, and warlordism uh, is not a collapse of a state. It's actually the first building block of that. And, and a very good friend of mine, Antonio Gustosi, has written about that in the context of Afghanistan. He doesn't see the warlords as a problem per se. They're actually the beginning of what you really need. So um, if we were to look at um, you know, how states uh, have emerged um, and uh, say, well, is, this, you know, is it really the state that's the problem? Uh, what would we... Uh, be left with? Well, I think one of the things that is quite striking is that wars have been instrumental in the creation not just of states, but of what we now call the state system. And that the um, emergence of the state system was an attempt, if you like, to limit uh, the powers of rivals, to coerce enemies, um, and to um, uh, ally with friends and neighbours who might then create larger blocks for survival. And it's John Mueller, for example, who argued that state wars... Um, have been in decline since this early modern period. And that wars and essentially are aberrations in the state system caused by irrational leaders like Hitler. But of course this is something of a Western viewpoint because wars are pretty frequent um, in the 19th and 20th century, indeed 21st century, in less developed countries across South America, uh, across um, Africa and Asia. Which brings us back again then to the New Wars theorists, uh, people like um, Martin van Creveld, Mary Caldor, and Sir John Keegan. Part of their argument was that nuclear weapons have made um, major state wars unthinkable, um, and that there is a sort of nuclear taboo which has emerged. They argued because of that, war was really only possible, and is only really possible, by so-called non-state actors, including insurgents, guerrillas and terrorists. The passing of state war, they say, is actually a good thing, to use a 1066 and all that analogy. A good thing because state wars brought us total war, the Holocaust uh, and atomic warfare. The trouble is, of course, that even in the nuclear era, state wars persist. Um, I mean, you've only got to look at a list of a few, a handful of conflicts to see on the left, the ones that are um, the state war ones, uh, they weren't recognised to be state wars, although within them they often had insurgencies. Uh, and over here, this great big long list, um, just again only a selection of the sort of irregular warfare uh, which is emerging. But in the nuclear era, we still have, you know, Gulf War I, uh, the Iran-Iraq War, the Falklands War of 1982. 
So this begs the question, well, is it all just going to be a regular war in the future? They are certainly more frequent. frequent. Uh, and actually there's no denying that, you know, even though they don't involve nuclear weapons, these irregular wars of Africa and Asia particularly are no less lethal. Um, and include these, all these casualties, by the way, demonstrated here, uh, were all inflicted by other fellow insurgent groups or members of their own population in these civil war environments. The young woman uh, up on the top left there, uh, only um, uh, in her early 20s, shot dead by the Taliban for merely talking to a member of the Afghan National Security Forces of the government of Afghanistan. What does all this imply? Well, perhaps, you know, what's quite worrying, I think, about what this implies is that wars and the state system um, of the past have created uh, great inequality, the winners and the losers of the war. And the losers, the dispossessed, the uh, revisionists, will want to break or alter the existing state system. Well, a lot is written by the new wars theorists that it's the participants, the actors, that make wars new and that, that have changed things. But many people, maybe the traditionalists, if you like, have argued that actually war is far more complicated uh, than just um, being about actors. It's more multifaceted. And Professor Hugh Strawn, my colleague, um, is the person who uh, has perhaps pointed this out uh, with the greatest effect. Uh, it's all very well saying, you know, uh, this is all brand new. Uh, we should come up with new ideas, new, new solutions. But his argument is uh, very much of the essence of war remains terrifying the same. Um, but that does get, at least give us a chance to be able to understand it and deal with it. If we were to ask ourselves, you know, what is war? And, and uh, we would reach perhaps for philosophy, as we do on our research programme. We've been together philosophers and ethicists and lawyers and international relations theorists. We would say essentially there are five elements uh, under, uh, under the realm of philosophy. One, of course, the obvious one is that it always involves a great deal of violence. But also, of course, the threat of violence, something that uh, Thomas Hobbes himself recognised that actually intimidation, the threat, the confrontation uh, is also a form of war and these periods of inactivity within war, phony war, can be explained in the same way. It's still a state of war, but nevertheless not much going on. Clearly resistance, uh, the reciprocal nature of violence needs to be there for it to become a war. Uh, Otherwise it's just a massacre or an occupation. There's an uh, an implication uh, philosophically that war involves intensity and duration, and that the belligerents are supposed to be public servants. They're not acting for their own private interests. And perhaps most controversial of all, philosophically, we think that war has some kind of aim or some kind of purpose, be that land, be that power, or be something more nebulous like victory. The problem is, of course, that even philosophically, uh, all each of these elements can be challenged. Confrontations between states or between actors are not new. Um, in the 18th century, in the Carnatic Wars, for example, in South India, they've been going on for years, long before a European state of war was declared in the Seven Years' War uh, later on. Uh, the Cold War too, uh, although a confrontation, um, felt pretty much like a war for those who were involved in, in conducting it. And the confrontasi of the 1960s, Indonesia, you know, apparently merely sabre-rattling against Britain and its interests or its allies in Singapore, uh, it felt pretty much like hot war for those on the ground in places like Borneo. And, you know, if we're told that the actors are somehow new and, and in real war they are people are only acting in the public interest, never in private interest, you know, we need to think carefully about that. The East India Company servants of the 18th century are quite often acting in a violent way, in a warlike way, overthrowing Indian states 
for the basis of their own private and personal gain. Even Napoleon Bonaparte, um, you can see through his own private letters and correspondence, was engaged in something quite personal. And you go back to the 18th century rulers like Louis XIV, exactly the same, all driven by personal interests as well as those of um, perhaps a state. And even duration of purpose is, is you know, a kind of problematic idea philosophically because we know that there are many episodes in war when even where the objectives cannot be achieved, people will still fight. And they'll fight on against all the odds. So, for example, the Spartans at Thermopylae you know, would take, fall into that category, but so perhaps with Al-Qaeda. Their chances of creating a united caliphate of all Muslims uh, under the, the leadership of a council run by Al-Qaeda um, members is pretty unlikely, and yet they still fight on and appear to be fighting on for some years to come yet. Now, others have said we should reach for different tools. We should look, for example, at cultures of war and cultures more generally. Uh, John Keegan and indeed uh, Jeremy Black, illustrated here, uh, argued that really, you know, war only comes about because of a sort of a culture of bellicosity. Uh, people want to fight. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the usual prediction is that these bellicose ideas are in decline in the West, that people don't want to fight quite as readily as they perhaps did in 1914. But of course the same predictions were made in the 1920s and 1930s. There'll be no more war, or the British public won't stand for it. And in this university there was a famous debate, as you know, in the Union, arguing that they would not fight uh, on the basis of their country being right or wrong. Um, I'm afraid what, of course, Britain got in 1939 was a pretty significant conflict, even though the people didn't want it. So perhaps culture we should put to one side as too nebulous a term. What about something more solid like law? And this is where, again, the Changing Character Warfare Programme engages dramatically with uh, scholars and the literature. The focus of the war in Iraq, as you know, was largely about its legality or not. And there have been some suggested changes in laws and war through time. If we go back again historically, um, the League of Nations, for example, tried to regulate the rules of war or the conditions under which countries might go to war. The famous Kellogg-Briand Pact of 1928 uh, outlawed war as an instrument of policy, a point obviously ignored by dictators in the 1940s. The United Nations has also argued that war is only legitimate uh, as a case of self-defence. And since then, as you know, there have been attempts to perhaps bring in new terms. War is no longer seen as a term that is acceptable in uh, international discourse. Now it's all armed conflict or humanitarian intervention with um, sanitised comments like collateral damage uh, rather than uh, what's really going on. This attempt to sanitise and to some extent justify military action doesn't change the nature of war itself, I would argue. <coughs> Western armies now, of course, find themselves engaged in counterinsurgency in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. The concept of counterinsurgency appears to be based on the modern idea of winning the hearts and minds of the population to support the counterinsurgent forces, with development projects making up lines of operation that the military themselves are engaged in. But of course, if you look back historically at real counterinsurgency, even during the wars of decolonisation, one will find that there are issues essentially about population control. They're about, um, requi they require rather coercion, um, militias to be formed, and a great deal of money to be expended uh, prior to there being any success. 
And most wars of decolonization, called wars of liberation by many African and Asian peoples, of course, are you know, one of the examples of not succeeding in a strategic operation, if you like. If we were to look at back at the history of the laws of war and say, you know, is there anything left, though, that we can still use and what can we make use of? Clearly, some things have changed. Declarations of war have gone out of fashion. Sadly, in my view, because a declaration of war, although, you know, seemingly uh, sort of, you know, it does seem a bit odd, but actually the good thing about a declaration of war is it actually clarifies the legal position of prisoners of war. It clarifies the fact that those public servants who are engaged in war are, if you like, given the legal sanction uh, to kill, to take life. Now, that may be pretty unpalatable, but consider the other option. What governments have gone in for by not declaring war is to criminalise all those who are guerrillas, insurgents and terrorists and to circumvent the law. If you look at what happened in Guantanamo Bay, you will see what I'm talking about. If you deprive your adversary of being a belligerent with any status, he's neither a criminal nor a combatant, you leave them in this limbo land and therefore exposed to all sorts of hideous ideas like extraordinary rendition and torture. The counterfactual I would offer to you, ladies and gentlemen, this afternoon is to say, why don't we consider the idea of aligning criminal law internationally with the laws of armed conflict? Because if we were to make all combatants, whoever they are, all belligerents, on the same status legally, it would mean that, first of all, we could protect prisoners of war, whoever they are. More importantly, those who decide to wage war on civilians could be tried under war crimes. Well, it was um, Hugo Greutus who uh, argued that um, we should try to look for uh, laws of war and international law that weren't based on emotional reactions to the kind of conflict we're facing. He wanted to get away from the wars of religion, where essentially there have been lots of mass murders, and reach for an acceptable set of instructions or, or guidance that everyone could sign up to. Internationally agreed standards, if you like. And uh, one of the things that, of course, he, he put forward uh, was to look at natural law or customary law and to try and build um, a, a case of law on that basis. I think the really key thing about Hugo Grotius, I'm not sure if I've got a picture of him somewhere, probably not, um, but the, the great thing about this individual was that he was able to identify uh, a way of escaping, as I say, from the kind of excesses of the wars of religion and say that even when your enemies break a law, the principle of the law should remain uh, extant. Okay, well, that's all very well, you know, talking about uh, where law and war uh, fit in. Oh, there he is, actually. I did find the slide. That's him. The other thing, perhaps, is worth mentioning is that it is entirely possible. There are historic examples of where you can make an enemy who is illegal into a legal combatant, both to protect them and you. Uh, this is the, um, the so-called Lieber Code of 1863, which is the federal government of the United States um, uh, as the uh, war uh, of the, uh, the states, or, or as we call it, the American Civil War, was underway gave uh, legal combatant status to the Confederates. Uh, and by doing so, avoided the idea that actually anyone who fought for the Confederacy was actually a criminal because they were breaking federal law against the, the, against the state. So that was actually uh, quite an interesting idea. Now, of course, there are uh, many, many problematic areas for the law, one of which involves children at war or child soldiers. Um, these are um, photographs, for example, uh, taken from the Gaza Strip uh, where um, young people are inculcated the idea of becoming warriors uh, against Israel uh, from an early age. And here we have some young uh, West Africans, um, a youngster being taught uh, weapons handling skills there. 
Uh, whilst the, the law is fairly clear about the status of children at war, by the way, um, and it's been uh, greatly clarified, in fact a colleague of mine here at All Souls has been instrumental in helping with that clarification of international law for child soldiers, the problem still remains legally of the status of children when they're actually in war. And I'll give you a couple of examples, uh, again from personal and direct experience working with British soldiers in Helmand recently, is where um, children are not just couriers uh, carrying information, not just acting as lookouts or even carrying ammunition, but sometimes themselves involved in planting improvised explosive devices which have killed or injured British soldiers. Or carrying, in some cases, explosives uh, actually up to uh, armed foot patrols in order to blow them up. Um, you know, these kind of questions uh, are certainly on the very fringes of the law and are very problematic for those involved in military operations. Of course, there's also the question of um, uh, terrorists. Uh, and we, I've already mentioned the idea of the ambiguity that existed after 9 11 uh, with Guantanamo Bay. Um, that clearly, there's some issue there about whether they should be detained uh, with, uh, on the basis of getting a trial. In this case, uh, many of them do not. There's also the question about peace enforcement uh, by Western powers. One of the suspicions has been, uh, I think, around the world, outside of the West, is that what the West is engaged in is toppling those regimes it no longer agrees with for its own ends, um, with Milosevic, uh, Saddam, and, of course, most recently with uh, Gaddafi. Um, that's Mullah Omar of Afghanistan, leader of the Taliban, the Amir al-Muamin, the leader of the faithful, as he calls himself. Um, now, I, that's an accusation, of course, made against the West, and I think we'd be mad to try and ignore it and say that, well, we can explain these things to ourselves and justify them to ourselves, but I think it does beg the question um, for the rest of us. Is it merely stronger powers exerting their influence in that very traditional way, uh, as the West has often, often done? What about international relations? Um, Oh, by the way, that's just one final image of the children at war. What about um, international relations? Does that uh, help us to try and explain either changes or continuities in, in war? It's a picture of Aden in 1967. Um, the neoliberal uh, international relations school suggests that war should be defined as clearly as possible um, in order to minimise the worst of its effects uh, and to minimise its influence in policy uh, altogether. Um, so if you can build institutions and processes to compensate for there being war, uh, that would be, I say, a good thing. The realist international school, uh, international relations school, uh, take a, a very different view. They argue that war is somehow inevitable um, and that really all you can really do is to locate power around the world and to try and take measures to manage it uh, as best you can. Um, laws, they argue, are always broken. Uh, by irregulars and by insurgent forces and by terrorists. Um, of course, the, the problem is, as I say, uh, that uh, if we disobey even our own principles, um, it does beg the question that we are approaching a, a Hobbesian world uh, rather than anything that gives us any hope for the future. Okay, well, if we've dealt with the fact there are a few problems with each of these different uh, academic disciplines when we approach the problem of war, um, it might bring us back to the idea of strategy or strategic studies. You know, what do the, the former thinkers about war, uh, how can they help us, how can they uh, take us through this particular problem? Well, I think... Um, Who is that, please? That's uh, Karl von Clausewitz, the um, German um, strategist thinker, wrote von Krieger, or On War, uh, in the 1830s. He actually never finished the book, it's interesting to, to note, and that's why the book is somewhat incoherent and difficult to read, um, he only actually finished book one and the first part of it. Uh, his wife 
uh, did the best she could, actually, with the rest of the, of the um, volumes um, and consolidated in one book. It's published, um, you know, it's retranslated into English in 1975, which is the version that most people use. But if you ask my colleague Hugh Strawn, he gets very uh, sort of hot under the collar about this particular issue because um, there are lots of mistranslations and misunderstandings uh, by the translators of 1975. No offence to them, they did the best they could, but there's a lot of nuances in German. Those who speak German will know that the word Natur, for example, can be translated in many, very different ways, and that causes a, a, a great deal of trouble. But what von Krashwitz did, and what these early strategic thinkers did, was help us, to, I think, to understand what war is, um, and to try and understand, really, particularly what the purpose of war is. One of the things that they all in common suggest, I'm not going to go through all of them, but what they sort of have in common is that they believe that war should have defined objectives and a sort of defined area. You know, you can't have a global war. That would be um, absurd. There are, you know, patchy, war is a patchy business. And that the purpose of strategy, they would argue, particularly von Clausewitz, would be to try and align the ways, the ends and the means in some way to make it sort of manageable. Clausewitz called it a rational calculus of war, bringing together ways, ends and means. And, of course, the important reason for having that is that you don't end up with a series of tactical successes. You win lots of battles and then throw away, uh, you know, strategically you throw away a, a war as a, as a sort of defeat. What, of course, it requires is a constant reassessment of what's going on uh, on the ground because war is dynamic and reciprocal. It's constantly changing. Uh, and enemies will, for example, try and adapt to each other. Um, they'll try to seek new advantages and we see that even today where, um, you know, uh, for example, the Taliban in Afghanistan will try to exploit the rules of engagement uh, that they know British forces uh, and American forces, for example, are uh, hidebound uh, to. For example, um, we had a case just only last year where a uh, sniper, a Taliban sniper, decided to, uh, he wanted to engage a British patrol. And what he did was he actually went into the village and enlisted by means of coaxing and bullying and intimidation a group of young people and some women to stand around him while he pulled the trigger. He then handed the rifle to one of the women, um, took off his shawar chemise and put on a new one and ran in a different direction, knowing that the British soldiers would not engage that particular individual. So things are always changing in that sense, and um, I think it's worth um, noting that, though, that all... Even insurgent forces, guerrilla forces, have a tendency to want to become conventional uh, by the end. They, they're eager to regain that legitimacy. Uh, and they will willingly adapt themselves and change and transform themselves in order to reach that kind of legitimacy. So here we have Chairman Mao uh, and Che Guevara, or Ernesto Guevara, to give his proper name. Interesting enough, Mao you know, was confronted by this problem of being you know, uh, an ideologue, um, already ostracised by other communists, um, almost got um, murdered by uh, other communists uh, who were sort of Soviet-inspired. He's confronted by large regular armies, by warlords, uh, and there's a mass illiterate population who do not understand the finer points of Marxist-Leninism, for example, the you know, sort of anti-Jurianism and sort of commodity fetishism and so on. They just didn't get it. <laughs> so what can he do? He can evolve a new way of fighting war, what appears to be new, but actually is rather traditional. Because what he wanted to do was to avoid battles, because he knew he couldn't win them. He had to re retreat whenever the regular forces advanced towards them. He had to emphasise propaganda and education over fighting. So he evolved what appeared to be a new strategy, but actually it's very old. Because so much of what is written by Mao in his famous little pamphlet on guerrilla warfare is actually a carbon copy of what you find in Sun Zhao's book, The Art of War, or the Ping Fars, it's called in Chinese, written in the 4th century BC. 
Che Guevara, of course, failed to adapt famously. I mean, had been very successful in a rural insurgency in Cuba with Fidel Castro, but tried to replicate exactly the same model in Central Africa and Bolivia and was killed as a result. What is really clear, though, about you know, guerrilla warfare and insurgent warfare is the sheer importance of propaganda and of coercion of the population. Those are the two most important tools that guerrillas have. The Americans uh, will often argue that they're facing new kind of form of asymmetrical warfare. Somehow things are not in symmetry. Now, of course, you've only got to go back to see the um, revolution in France and the Napoleonic Wars, 1790s through to 1815, to realise asymmetry is not new at all. Um, the revolutionaries tried to fuse together the idea of revolution and war to launch a war of liberation across Europe against the crowned heads of uh, each of those monarchical states. Um, and um, were rather successful initially in utilising mass and mobility and ideology to uh, motivate their soldiers. That wasn't new. And when the, in the 19th century you find that Europeans are uh, taking up colonial possessions around the world, they're faced by an array of enemies, uh, all of whom, again, are using asymmetrical means. The Pashtuns, or the Patans of the northwest frontier in Afghanistan, uh, the Kazakhs, uh, Samuri Toure in um, West Africa... Uh, in the late 19th century, he waged a kind of guerrilla war against the French in an asymmetrical way until betrayed by his own side. So this asymmetrical warfare, not new. And perhaps it's really that Bosnia and Somalia and Iraq and Afghanistan have seemed new in contrast with things like the Cold War, with which we became so familiar. Cold War had this familiarity of stasis, you know, state-on-state war was the big threat. But of course that too is really a bit of a misnomer. If you go back to Vietnam, you'll realise at the height of the Cold War, we have this asymmetrical uh, war going on involving insurgency and guerrilla warfare. Um, And the Americans were so deeply and profoundly affected by Vietnam, they wanted to avoid protracted war, avoid counterinsurgency in the future, and find strategies like the Weinberger Doctrine, strategies that would help them avoid this kind of conflict, just by the way, as Clausewitz argued, that states should try to do. After 9-11, it's worth remembering that the Americans wanted to simply make use of the military forces that they had, rather than what they would like to have had. And what they were looking for um, was some sort of military, decisive military success in 2001. And they, initially they got it. They made use of local allies on the ground in Afghanistan, and they used air power, their great strength, in order to crush uh, the Taliban. But they then made that crucial and critical error, which we remember throughout the rest of the century, invasion of Iraq in 2003. Why was it such an error? Because they lacked geographical focus and they diverted key resources uh, from Afghanistan that year which would have prevented the resurgence of uh, the Taliban and indeed of Al-Qaeda. They gave jihadist organisations around the world a legitimacy in fighting against an American occupation in Iraq. They divided their NATO allies precisely at the time that they needed a coalition of the willing and they squandered their support that had been built up, the sympathy that had been generated by the act of 9-11. And finally, of course, and mention again, those new detention rules after 9-11 broke the laws of our conflict as we understood them uh, in the West. Perhaps we should also, though, turn away from these sort of current operations and actually just, you know, for a moment and, and ponder just for a moment our adversary, al-Qaeda, um, the foundation, sometimes called the base, Uh, and uh, contemplate whether their techniques constitute something new in warfare. Well, of course, there are some new tactics. Uh, Mass casualty terrorism is new. 
uh, war on civilians in the West by the dint of the fact that you are Western civilians, um, war against Western culture, which is seen as vulgar and corrosive, and fear of global influence by America and its Arab and other allies um, in the Western world. And because of this particular technique or set of ideas, um, we had 9-11. was conceived of, by the way, not in 1993 in the Sudan or indeed in 1998 in Afghanistan. It was conceived of in the 1960s by this man, Sayyid Qutub, uh, who um, was executed by the Egyptian authorities in 1966. Qutub's idea was to hijack aircraft in the 1960s and fly them into Western cities as flying bombs. He believed that the Western media was so uh, voluble uh, and so nervous that it would immediately transmit terror and paralysis around the Western world and force the Westerners to overreact. This, he said, would give us the means to generate resistance, a jihadist movement, a global jihadist movement against the Western world, fulfilling all of his, I have to say, extremely racist fantasies. Terrorism, of course, is a phenomenon, a technique of war that favours the weak. Its uh, emphasis is on the... What nationality was He was Egyptian, yeah. Uh, and, of course, his original ideas were derived from the Muslim Brotherhood, but... Uh, yeah, he moved on from that into something far more extreme. But this idea of, of propaganda, the deed, of, of manipulating the media, I think is worth you know, pausing for thought, because it does seem to be such a new thing, a new media like sort of internet and, uh, and Twitter and all these other features appear to be uh, tools uh, in the hands of these particular individuals. But again, it's not new. Um, these three individuals here uh, were, can, you can call them broadly, Indian revolutionaries, of the period 1905 through to 1919. Uh, they believed in, in launching a terrorist campaign in order to advertise the idea of Indian nationalism, um, and uh, it was Savarkar and Hardayal whose ideas uh, led to the assassination of the military member of the Viceroy's Committee of India when he was in London, bringing terrorism from India into, back into the Metropole, back into London. It was also, at the same time, and which reached its sort of apogee, if you like, in 1919, a caliphate movement which grew up in India, now in what today we would call Pakistan. The idea was that they would march on Constantinople, gathering Muslims as they went to resurrect the Umayyad dynasty, the worldwide Ummah, 1919. It filtered out largely because the Amir of Afghanistan, Habibullah, was an ally of Great Britain and refused to allow them to cross the territory of Afghanistan. These ideas themselves, these ideas of, you know, uh, of revolutionary terroristic policies led by a small cadre who could influence the broad mass of the population, of course we can draw right back to Lenin back in 1903 in his famous booklet, What is to be Done? How do you foster revolution? He says you need a hardcore, ruthless men who will lead the revolution regardless of cost and bring everybody else with them. And from that particular idea of the early 20th century, we have, I think, as the sort of legacy of that uh, groups like Al-Qaeda. But let's not forget that in all these conflicts uh, and all these different ideas, um, the uh, revolutionaries, the sort of t- the terroristic, if you like, revolutionaries, have so often got it wrong. There are so many myths and errors these people make. Uh, revolution also be, appears to be a, such a romantic idea. I see young people walking around with Che Guevara T-shirts on even today, and I stop them in the street and ask them, why are you wearing that? Have you no idea who that was and what he was advocating? And often the answer is no, but it looks quite cool. Um, Revolutionaries frequently 
have created more violence, not less. And yet the promise they've always made, the Taliban included, was that if we come to power, there'll be less violence. We will, we will bring about peace. That was the Taliban's great success uh, in 1995, 96, when they came to power. And so often revolutionaries and, and the peoples of revolutions are consumed by their own revolution. Look out, Egypt, is all I can say now. <coughs> Dictatorships, of course, so often follow those revolutions as the populations crave for the restoration of security and order. And let's not forget the West has also used revolution for its own ends. You can talk about the Germans of the First World War trying to rouse the people of Persia and Afghanistan and India against the British Empire. You can talk about T.E. Lawrence from my college who tried to raise the Arab revolt to, in order to bring down the Turkish Ottoman regime from within uh, its own territory and enlist jihadist sort of thinking and jihadist propaganda for that end. Or you could talk about Special Operations Executive in the Second World War, trying to set Europe alight, uh, as Churchill put it. Um, all of these are, in a sense, the forebears of the sort of fighting we see today. That's, that's not new. Let's not also forget that sometimes the people have also been targeted in war by the West. These are illustrations of Dresden in 1945. And if we took the idea of the Cold War... Um, you know, what Hugh Strong calls, in a sense, with nuclear weapons, the apotheosis of the democratisation of war. Um, because nuclear weapons, we know, were only going to be effective if they were targeted against civilian populations in a way that could cause mass death. Is war new because it's now amongst the people? Rupert Smith, a British general, wrote a book called The Utility of Force a few years ago now, back in the early 90s, and said, you know, war is now war that's amongst the people. It's not like state war anymore. Well, wars have always been amongst the people. If you talk to the partisans of Ukraine, of Yugoslavia, of Poland in the Second World War, they were very much wars amongst the people, wars of survivals of peoples. And the ideas of piracy and terrorism and guerrilla warfare and insurgency, again, are just the inheritors of this much, much older tradition of war amongst the people. Wars in Africa today, for example, there's no boundary often between military forces and civilian populations so often... They're mixed up together and, uh, and they die, of course, together. Now, there will be people here, of course, saying, actually, Rob, you've not even mentioned technology. You know, and surely, if you're going to tell us about the, the changing character of war, you must at least acknowledge that technology has something to do with it. And, of course, technology is a key driver in the changing character or face of war, but not in its nature. You know, we know that... Um, you know, we've only got to look at sort of a list of a few illustrations of how technology shifted even in the 19th century when we moved from bladed weapons and short-range firearms or missile-firing weapons. By the time you get to the end of the, 20, uh, end of the 19th century, early 20th century, you have you know, artillery that can fire 20-something miles, uh, naval guns that can fire 22 miles, uh, steam locomotives that can shift whole armies in a matter of a few days, even the humble you know, kind of tins of condensed milk or tinned rations could now allow armies to project themselves into the littoral of other people's continents and stay there all year round, in any weather, in any climate, in any terrain. And air power, of course, we know how instrumental and important that has been. And these things are often seen as so new, as so important. But the key point about technology is the, the idea of adaptation. It's a change, not of a new technology somehow ushering uh, in a new nature or essence of war. And by that, I'm going to go back to the Battle of Hattin in 1187. Because the Muslim populations there, the Muslim armies against the Crusaders, were 
um, pretty sorely pressed by these heavily armoured knights from Europe, these ideologically indoctrinated individuals who would seize their land. And so they had to change, they had to adapt. They adopted light cavalry um, formations which used archery on horseback rather than lances. They didn't try to copy the West, they tried to subvert and undermine the strength of the West. Then, of course, they realised that the environment could help them. And they drew a Western army deeper and deeper into the desert, getting it more and more exhausted and more thirsty, until eventually it was surrounded and demoralised, and then they moved in and they killed them all. And if we look at you know, other technologies, the U-boat, the submarine, you know, at the time, early 1900s, you know, the battleship reigned supreme. It was the ultimate technology, the ultimate symbol of your state power. And yet the humble submarine which came in just in 1901, just within a few years, was sinking so many ships in the Atlantic in the 1940s that in 1943 Churchill was very, very concerned indeed whether Britain would be able to survive this kind of counter-blockade by Germany. Um, we were saved by several things, of course, the American involvement in the war, so thank you very much to the United States. Another thing that was saved, of course, was the intelligence intercepts and the proper coordination of air and sea power. Indeed, absolutely, of intelligence nature, that's right. And when it comes to air power, I mean, I think we're in a new era now of air power. Um, a lot is made of these uh, UAVs, unmanned aerial vehicles. The American Air Force is shifting to completely robotic, mechanical means to deliver its ordnance. And now you can sit in California with a joystick on a computer keyboard and you can fly an aircraft from California to drop its payload into central Afghanistan. And that is the way, in the sense, the technology is perhaps moving. But I would add a couple of things to this. One is that we know from technology, it's not so much the technology itself, it's the person sitting behind the technology that really matters. If their morale is low or their motivation goes or their will is broken, they will run away and leave that weapon system and be defeated. We have many examples of that. And I think the problem is that so many things are changing, we may not be cognisant of actually what is changing. Um, A lot is written at the moment about the possibility of DNA weapons, genetic weapons, or of the manipulation of the environment the ability to travel in space. We don't know how those are going to affect warfare. Uh, we can only just make sort of speculation based on things like, things like science fiction. <coughs> but what about intervention and humanitarian intervention, of which we hear so much? This is the famous Jacques-Louis David painting, the intervention of the Sabina women um, who tried to prevent the fighting between the Romans uh, here and uh, the Sabines on the other side by literally throwing themselves in front of all the fighting. Not quite the way international peacekeeping goes at the moment. Certainly I don't think ISAF are dressed in quite such a nude fashion these days. But um, what appears to be the case with international peacekeeping and international intervention is that there are new rules of engagement which seek to be impartial, to limit violence, um, to really, by just a sheer presence, uh, prevent fighting. But many of you will realise, of course, that these sort of interventions are only ever successful where the fighting has really already come to a stop. And therefore, what the West has found itself involved in is peace enforcement, what General Wesley Clark uh, referred to as a sort of coercive diplomacy, which carries much greater risk. Um, and I think the problem is that um, NATO uh, has you know, got itself involved in a series of conflicts, not, not least of which Kosovo, where it found itself bombing Belgrade in order to bring about some kind of peaceful intervention uh, over the territory of Kosovo. And in Afghanistan and Iraq, of course, were supposed to be simply peacekeeping. And what they got was peace enforcement. And what's characterising the fighting, particularly in Afghanistan, is political failure rather than even military. There's been no correlation 
uh, of the ways, ends and means about what we've been trying to do. There's been little will to commit the resources that are actually required for the Afghan people. There's been an early abdication of responsibility. Setting up a government for the, the Karzai regime and then carrying out some elections does not constitute a proper institution building uh, and a proper civic society uh, or indeed you know, proper employment opportunities for the Afghan people. The UN has been unable or unwilling, in my view, to reach for proper solutions. Um, there's been a rise of tokenism. Some nations have sent just two soldiers to Afghanistan, one of whom presumably guards the other one, um, <laughs> as an attempt to uh, get a place on the top table and to make it look as if their nation should be represented in whatever benefits could be accrued as a result of it. There's been a lot of national self-interest at stake in Afghanistan, and indeed in Iraq too, uh, not, uh, not just by the coalition partners. And I think too many solutions have been left to the military commanders to pick up the pieces. Militaries are simply not equipped to provide political solutions. And I think that's something that our politicians need to take on board. What about forecasts? And I'll, I'll, I'm going to conclude now, because I see people are getting a little uncomfortable with the, sort of, this barrage of information and rhetoric at you, so I'll try to, um, to do that for you. Um, it's widely held, I think, that there will be um, consequences of global warming uh, which will have an effect on global security. It's argued that there'll be a stiffer competition for diminishing resources because our economies are based on this voracious securing of resources without replenishment, without proper management. That there'll be population migration and population growth which will displace populations and increase that pressure, particularly in highly urbanised spaces and particularly for the world's poor. The problem is, of course, and as Hugh Strawn himself points out, that the risk is that security issues like this, by even having the word security placed on them, seems to kind of suggest that there should be some sort of military antidote to these problems, which actually may worsen the very problem that we're trying to identify. Militaries may just not be the appropriate tool for these kind of very delicate uh, uh, and precise problems. Uh, those are some neurons. That's Nars' impression of a, a neurotic uh, neuron pathway, sorry, not neurotic pathway, neuron pathway. <laughs> it's how, how our brains work, in a sense. And there's some uh, suggestion that actually the alteration of genetics is going to have repercussions to the human race because we're meddling with things we don't really fully understand. And uh, there's even a suggestion the American military at the moment are working on actually a universal soldier, some kind of enhanced human being who'd be able to not sleep and, and perhaps not eat very much. Um, the research hasn't got very far because the candidates keep falling asleep. Um, <laughs> Well, let, let's finish up. Um, I think perhaps what we should um, just bear in mind is that you know, some things um, are not changing at all. Um, a lot of, of, about war appears to be quite traditional, even though its sort of visual appearance might, might appear quite dramatic. Uh, for all its new technologies you know, and all the kind of talk about chemical warfare or biological warfare, you know, these are things that which our grandparents or our parents would have been familiar with. Uh, and when it comes to sort of how you go about um, waging war or even contemplating war, uh, we wouldn't do much wrong in looking at Thomas Aquinas, for example, and the idea of the just war tradition of, um, you know, use ad bellum, the kind of the criteria by which we should judge ourselves before we engage in war, or use in bello, the, the rules of proportionality and discrimination which should limit uh, those excesses which war is so often, as Clash would say, given to. And there are even people like Sun Tzu who argued in the 4th century BC that war should be the expression of last resort. You should only ever engage in a war, he argued, if you already know the outcome. Something which featured, as I say, in the Weinberger Doctrine in the 1990s. What is the top right hand 
Uh, that is a, a stealth ship. It's a new American vessel for um, getting into riverine areas, presumably without being detected. Quite how it works, I don't know. But um, there we are. So let's, let's um, conclude. Um, I'm going to take us back to Clausewitz in order to, uh, to end what I'm saying. War, he argued, is essentially the, ne- the same in nature, in nature, in its essence. Um, but it's different each time, he said, in character, which makes it hard to, to uh, understand how we should prepare ourselves. The essence of war, he argued, as I say, was unlimited violence. And he cautioned um, that state armies should do what they can to avoid the sort of guerrilla violence, the war amongst the people, which has occurred these days. War, he said, has three elements in a trinity, in a dynamic state. They're, they're constantly jostling with each other. The idea of passion, of chance, and, of course, of reason. These are so often misunderstood. And so often you hear Clashwitz quoted as simply saying, war is uh, you know, an extension of policy by an admixture of other means. He didn't mean that. He meant that policy is often subordinate to war. War has such a dynamic character that actually it's extremely difficult simply to formulate your policy and assume you can carry it on by means of war. War can run away with you. It run away, run away with itself, indeed. War, he argued, I think most convincingly, is an act of will. It's to force others to do as you will, he argued. And in war, retaining that resolve is essential. And today, it seems, and we're told by you know, various different media hacks, that you know, Westerners lack the stomach for war, and certainly that's the the argument by groups like Al-Qaeda. A loss of will is the road to defeat. Um, and uh, the only way of, if you like, translating that will into anything meaningful is to is have the will to see it through and the will to adapt, transform, to recognise problems and to ride the sort of tiger, if you want. And there are, I think, you know, lots of warnings that one could put forward. And one of the warnings I would suggest to you is that war in its essential nature is annihilationist or exterminationist. That's what Clashwitz, I think, warned us about. And that the idea of wars of survival may be unfamiliar to the West in the present, but we certainly were not in the past, in the Thirty Years' War and the First and Second World War, and I suggest to you that they will not be that unfamiliar in the future either. The will of the um, dispossessed in the world at the moment, which has formed in a sense the kind of starting board of even my thinking about how Afghans conduct war, why are they so keen to fight against the Western coalition and their own government, it's because I think there's something going on about the will of the dispossessed wishing to overcome the will of the West, of the wealthy West, if you like. A revolutionary ideology for a new generation, if you want. New leaders in the future, in the near future, as they do today, will attempt to enlist that sort of feeling uh, in order to further their own ends. You know, Hitler wasn't a demagogue for no reason because um, he understood that, the, the nature of that problem as well. Certainly it's true that states will form, fail and reform uh, and I think that change, that process of change, will be facilitated and assisted and accompanied by war and by revolution. And it seems pretty clear that certain regions of the world will remain in an almost permanent state of violence, regardless of what the West attempts to do. Internal security will perhaps become far more important in Britain, alongside the sort of security that Britain wishes to see in other parts of the world. And I would say that probably goes uh, uh, elsewhere as well. So what advice can we reach for from the past? Well, Basil Littlehart um, gave a very good speech at RUSI, the Royal Knights of Institute, in 1931. And one of the things he wrote about was the idea that the, the idea of war is to bring about a better peace, um, if only from your own point of view. Um, but you need to keep peace in mind if you are driven or drawn into the idea of war. Uh, and indeed, some of our Roman uh, forebears also knew 
um, that if you wish to see peace, you should prepare for war. Other people have argued that actually, see vis pacem, para pacem, if you wish to see peace, prepare for peace. Much of war, uh, in its essence, then, I would suggest to you, is going to be unchanged in essence, although its character certainly is and will change uh, in the future. Thank you very much.